Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. I mean, I was blessed yesterday. Um, we were home and somebody just called me out of the blue and saying that they had a delivery of groceries for me and my kids. And I don't know and to, you know, I don't I, I can't even say thank you, but I'm I'm really I'm really thankful for a lot of good people, you know. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with CalMatters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, Thursday, May 7th, the rent comes due for California. And it's not looking pretty for landlords and tenants out there. No, as the economic fallout from coronavirus continues to ripple throughout the state and country and globe. But particularly here in California, renters, shockingly, having a very difficult time affording their sky-high rent payments. And some renters are trying to make a political statement out of that. Not only are people not paying, but a decent number, and we'll get into this in this episode, are doing so for political purposes as well, going on what they call a rent strike to try to get the government to cancel rent entirely. So we'll be talking about that type of activism, and then we'll also be talking about some specific proposals some lawmakers in California have already put out there to deal with this problem and what is realistic. And we have the perfect guests to talk about this with. Yes, we have uh, both a tenant and a landlord. Our tenant is a woman named Patricia Mendoza. She lives in Imperial Beach, which is a small community, beach community just south of San Diego. And we have Evelyn Garcia. Her family owns a rent control department complex in South LA. As I mentioned at the top, and I'm sure everyone is acutely aware, the economy in California is pretty much shutting down might be inching towards reopening, but things are pretty grim out there. Liam, this has affected you pretty directly now. So starting the week of May 10th and then for the next 12 weeks, so through the summer, uh, I'm going to be on a, a furlough one day a week, unfortunately. So working four days instead of five. And I'll be honest, that's terrible. This is a huge story. Millions of people are affected, and all of us at the LA Times want to be doing our best to communicate and get the most information out there that we can. You know, our print advertising revenue in the newspaper has gone down so substantially that we're being asked to take cuts, and the cut that we're taking is this one-day-a-week furlough. This serves as a unfortunate reminder that if you enjoy this podcast and if you enjoy Liam's reporting specifically, subscribe to the LA Times. Yeah, so I'm going to give the link for that. It is uh, latimes.com slash subscriptions. We're offering $1 for the first month or less than $100 for the year. That's a great deal. And our future is is in digital subscribers. And so I really hope if you're a supporter of us that you can do that. And I will hint at something that I will be uh, putting out very soon. I'm going to do a bit of a giveaway and I'll leave it a little mysterious what that giveaway is. But if you send me via email or via Twitter a screenshot of you subscribing to the LA Times, you will be entered into that giveaway. Oh, wow. This is also a reminder to donate to Cal Matters. I will not be, at least knock on wood, I uh, haven't heard I'm going to be furloughed anytime soon. But this is a very challenging financial time for the entire news media industry. That includes nonprofits as well. So if you're able to and have always thought about, hey, I'd like to donate or I'd like to subscribe, and you still have an income, please do it. Please. Let me echo that. All media outlets should be supported now if you can, and, and please donate to CalMatters as well. 
Okay, let's move towards the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks. And for those that believe in karma, this avocado takes us to the perfect destination. And that is essentially my backyard. Mm, what's happening in your backyard, Liam? I moved into this apartment in, in LA. It's in, I'm in the Palms neighborhood, which is near Culver City last fall. And then roughly a week after I uh, moved in, I noticed there was some demolition going on uh, at the property next to me, which is a small sort of uh, office retail space. Mm. And then, you know, being someone who knows how to do these things, I checked the permitting in the city, just like, hey, what's coming up next to me? And it turns out there's a 62-unit apartment complex with an underground parking garage that they pulled permits for. At what stage are they in the construction? So we're now at the stage where there's a giant mound of dirt right outside my second-story window with a guy in the backhoe who drives it every morning where we lock eyes with each other. They're at that stage of construction. That's adorable. And that obstructs your view of what? The entire Pacific Ocean? Uh, yes. Or... Oh, yes. Without this, if the construction weren't there, I could see clear to Tokyo. But unfortunately, <laughs> this, this backhoe blocks it all. And all I see is a giant mound of dirt. So for those of you who listen to this podcast clutching your Liam Dillon voodoo dolls, it's worked. It's actually worked. Has it been an inconvenience? Honestly, has it been an inconvenience? To your day-to-day -day life. It's loud, dude. You know, this is not a joke. Like, it's a loud thing. What time uh, do they start doing stuff? 7 a.m. every morning. Yikes. And yeah. that's been going on for how long? Oh, pretty much since the pandemic started, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they timed it just for when I'd be home. Will it significantly remake the character of the neighborhood you live in? And it's interesting. So I live in, in this Palms neighborhood is very close to transit. And as a result, a lot of developers have taken advantage of the city of LA's sort of transit-oriented communities oh, is program. This, yes. Is this a TOC it is development? It is indeed. Wow. Yeah, and actually, it's look a, at this. I don't know if we're, how much we're going to get into this, but it's actually an interesting story. If you look back at the permit history, the original project was for 49 units, which is the threshold just below for, would trigger CEQA in the city of LA. But ah. because the project took advantage of this TOC program, which is a kind of a bonus project for developers who want to build near transit, it's going to be 62 units. And as a result, there's a set aside for low-income residents that wouldn't have otherwise been in the plan. Gotcha. Yeah. And you are not in a rent-controlled unit, correct? No, my building was built in the 80s, so I am not in a rent-controlled unit. Are you ever tempted at like seven in the morning to open your window and just yell, do you know who I am? <laughs> and then just close it? No, because then the dirt be flying in my face. I don't want to deal with that either. Mm. So, Well, you've changed since leaving Sacramento. <laughs> Let's move on to the topic of the fortnight, which is what is California going to do about these missed rent payments that are stacking up and stacking up and stacking up? Let's talk first about the rent strike. Yeah. What was it? Who organized it? Is it too early to say whether it was successful or not? Let's start there. Why don't we even start a little bit further back? I think there was a lot of concern heading into April, whether people were going to pay their rents or not. And yeah. sort of by and large, it seems nationally, the numbers weren't too bad in terms of those at least making partial rent payments. There's a study that comes out from a National Multifamily Housing Council, which is sort of a mm -hmm. landlord group in D.C., and their number was over like close to 92 percent 
of tenants that they and properties they track, which is about a quarter of the rentals nationwide, paid at least some rent in April. And again, not too far off what their metric was in normal time. Yeah, a little bit of a dip, but definitely better than what the rental housing industry expected and what tenants expected, I would say, too. So now heading into May, though, second month of this, people out of work, longer time, savings drying up, you know, particularly in California, if you got your stimulus check, not going to cover your rent, right? In many places, people are really expecting a significant decrease in those who are, are going to be paying their, their rent bill. And not only that, I think leading right now to the rent strike, many who are arguing, listen, like we're in a situation that is for millions and millions of people across the country, not their fault. And in fact, the best way to fight this from a public health perspective is for people to stay home. And mm -hmm. so how can you expect people who have lost their jobs, which is in many ways necessary to fight this public health problem, to be able to pay their rent? And so not only are people not paying their rent, they have a political reason behind it. They call it a rent strike. I just want to add a couple things on the scope of the problem here, because it truly could be massive. We'll see actually the National Multifamily Housing Council, full disclosure, a advertiser with CalMatters. They'll have their main numbers up Friday. By the time you hear this podcast, you will know. Exactly. Yeah. But the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, a couple of researchers there put out their kind of best guess of like, okay, let's look at renters who are working in the industries that were immediately shut down. So we're talking retail, hotels, restaurants, yeah. other parts of the service sector that saw the most unemployment. The estimate there for California in terms of one month's worth of rent that those households owe was close to $4 billion. Yeah. So that's just one month. It's yeah. an absolutely massive number. Of course, that's likely not the total amount of missed rent, right? Yeah. People can tap savings. Not everyone in those industries has been laid off. There's right. unemployment benefits. But you should think of it at that type of scale. Like the, we are talking billions, not millions. Thus, Thus, rent strike. Again, we should just make clear. It's hard to know how many people are not paying their rent in general, let alone how many yes. are not paying their rent and calling it a rent strike, right? But a couple of numbers that may be a little bit helpful here. Nationwide, uh, there's an organizing group, uh, Action Center on Race and the Economy, that has been collecting kind of petitions for people saying that they're going to go on a rent strike. They got, as of the 1st of May, about 200,000 people saying that they were going to do that with mm -hmm. these folks clustered along the coast, which makes sense. That's where the rent is the highest in the country. And then when it comes to California, the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, the group ACE, is doing their own sort of petitioning. And they, as of May 1st, had signed up more than 12,000 tenants in the state who pledged to do a rent strike this month. And was it successful? How do you gauge it? I mean, let's start with what they're calling for specifically. So they're saying, again, not paying rent and their demand essentially is cancel rent and cancel mortgages. So yes, the, hashtag, right, right, hashtag cancel rent. Yes. If you've seen the, that hashtag, this is what people are talking about. So essentially, people don't pay rent and landlords don't pay mortgages during this state of emergency. It's a bit more complicated than that uh, in terms of mm -hmm. what sort of the total call is, but at a base level, that's essentially it. And that's encompassed in, a, in led federal legislation, which is being carried by a Democratic representative, Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. And so the, the kind of the national demand is encapsulated in that. Some of the California groups, uh, ACE, as I mentioned, is also calling on Governor Gavin Newsom, but there's no legislation that would 
again, encapsulates these demands the same way that there is now at the federal level. Nothing's been put in writing in the same way. So ACE was heavily involved in Prop 10, the rent control campaign that ultimately failed Mm -hmm. in 2018. Mm -hmm. They were also one of the main driving organizing forces behind the anti-rent gouging bill that was successful, that passed the legislature and is the law of the land. What's their most recent claim to fame. Yeah, so what's interesting, you know, ACE has been a common thread in some of these sort of more aggressive actions that tenants around the state have taken since this past fall. So I think most famously was the Moms for Housing effort in Oakland, where a group of homeless Mm -hmm. mothers took over as seized a vacant corporate-owned property in Oakland and ultimately were able to work out a deal after being evicted and getting the attention of Governor Newsom and others work out a deal where that property would be sold and others to a community land trust in the city. Ace also is tied to the similar occupation in Los Angeles, El Sereno neighborhood, where a dozen housing insecure families in March took over vacant publicly owned property down here in LA. And so what was interesting in talking to some of the national organizers in this rent strike action is they cited the Moms for Housing effort in particular, kind of laying the foundation for these more aggressive actions in California and now spreading throughout the country with the rent strike. We should say rent strikes have been a possible tactic for quite some time and and one that tenants groups have continually, I think, tried to deploy, but with very much mixed success because of the obvious risk here. And the risk, of course, is you get evicted. Exactly. Well, that brings me to my next point is that it is easier to do this type of rent strike when the state has put a pause on eviction. Right. 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 Which is just to remind people, that's the current state of play. California's court system has hit the pause button where you could still basically be liable for an eviction, but it can't happen until the state of emergency is lifted. Do you view this as a big step forward in kind of shifting the debate around California's housing crisis farther to the left? Yes, I do. I mean, again, I, I do think there's a distinction between simply not being able to do it and then sort of being yeah. being loud and declarative about that and saying that the response to this is you and no one else should. And I think that is in line with some of these, you know, as we said, sort of seizures, if you will, of these vacant properties that we had seen previously. And so I do think, you know, this is a moment where you're having more people connect to this movement than they otherwise had been or otherwise would have been. You know, it was interesting in talking to a national organizer about this. She said, you know, what Moms for Housing did was allow people to sort of see what they believe to be problems in the system where you have vacant houses while also having a, a large homeless population, right? Mm-hmm. And yes. and now where they feel their own housing insecurity, more so than they ever would have before the pandemic started, they can more clearly connect to those sorts of concerns about how the housing market operates. I think also specifically here in California, this feels like a boiling point where it's, you know what? I've been paying an insane amount of rent for a very long time now. Rents that are higher than in vast majority of most other places in the country. And now you're expecting me to pay it during a pandemic to hell with it. I I think you can feel it. You can feel that kind of change in tenor where the crisis was there before. And now it feels that much more intense, at least the resistance paying the level of rent that Californians are currently paying. Mm -hmm. I would agree with that. So calling for rent to be canceled and calling for mortgages to be canceled, a lot of those demands are accompanied 
by a major infusion of government dollars, either to the tenants or to the landlords. Well, I think right? it's interesting, and we haven't talked yet about kind of the landlord response to this, but I think and part of the landlord response to this has been, look, like we agree that tenants should get rental assistance. And I think every major landlord group is calling for that. And of course you could say this is obviously self-serving because they're the ones, you know, if there's housing assistance, they're the ones who get paid, right? Uh, the rents mm -hmm. get paid. But that is a way different tenor, I think, than what we've had in sort of previous situations where you're seeing from the public statements from a lot of the major landlord groups, a tremendous amount of sympathy for the plight of tenants during this time, talking about doing things like no landlord should be increasing rents, people should work out payment plans, all those sorts of things that, again, yeah. prior to this happening, those were not the, the statements that were coming out of landlord groups. Well, of course. Yeah. I mean, that's also partly because they have money to lose. Yeah. Tenants and landlord groups are on the same side of the debate in terms of, hey, give us money. Right. <laughs> like, right. That's, that's right. 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 <laughs> and there's obviously disagreements over exactly who gets that money right. first and how it's distributed right. and the strings attached to it. But fundamentally, both landlords and tenants want major infusions of public dollars into the rental housing industry. They're on the same side in that respect. It also goes back, you know, landlords all, groups often talk about sort of this chain of reactions. What, what happens if yes. someone doesn't pay rent, right? So someone loses their job, doesn't pay rent, landlord can't pay their mortgage or can't pay their bills. Then they go into foreclosure. And the property gets foreclosed property gets on. foreclosed on. Who knows who buys it next? You know, all, all that sort of stuff. And now tenant groups say, oh, we're calling for canceling mortgages too. But mortgage is not our only bill and what do you expect us yeah. to do? And so there is this dynamic here that I think even some left-leaning groups, you know, I talked to some folks at the Urban Institute, you know, a think tank out of D.C., believe that you know, the better option is simply to infuse money into yes. the housing market to make sure kind of everyone gets made whole than simply canceling payments. So it depends on how you define canceling payments. Yeah. I mean, even talking to tenants groups, yeah. yes, they'll say, also cancel mortgages, but there is a, you know what, let's give something to landlords yeah, here. Right. Primarily motivated by the fear of foreclosure. Right. You know, right. And, right. and what would happen to the tenants then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's talk about what the state can realistically do about this. All this boils down to is who is going to eat the lost rent payments. That's what the entire question boils down to. Right. Is it going to be tenants who get rent or debt attached to them and that just kind of stays with them and the landlord will try to pursue it and if they can't pay it will they be evicted are the landlords going to have to simply say okay 20 percent of what you owed we're just going to accept as a loss or 50 percent or 80 percent are local governments going to pitch in is the state government going to pitch in or is the federal government going to pitch in who's going to eat the money right so some local governments have started some funds for rental assistance, they just don't have that much money to work with. So LA notably, I think, has a million dollars, some, something like that, a new fund that they've created. It's about that amount. LA County is a similar program. But again, like in the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot of money, especially given how high rents are in Los Angeles. And number two, local government budgets, you know, given the Decimated. huge reductions in hotel visits and sales taxes, they're in a really bad place right now, and not a lot of money is going to be left over for rental assistance. So unrealistically for local governments to meet the financial need at, at the scale we just talked about. Let's talk about the states, because if you're calling on Newsom to cancel rent and cancel mortgages, then the implication is state come up with some money for this. 
Newsom's finance people just leaked details of what they're projecting the next budget to be, and it's a $54 billion deficit. Which is the um, highest in the state's history. It's bad. Yes. It's bad. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, once you adjust kind of for inflation, and then <laughs> if it's over a three-year window or a one-year window, you know, you get into, well, is it worse than right, what it right, was right. before? Yeah, yeah. You, you see all this hedging now where it's like, oh, you know, maybe when the tax receipts come in. Right, right, right. Yeah. This is blowing a hole in absolutely everything. Yeah, it, not, it is yeah. horrific. And not only that, I mean, most of the state general fund of the state budget goes to education. Could be significant need, yeah. new needs for education for changing the kind of learning that students will have to do in this sort of post or even during the pandemic world. Not just that, just the broader coronavirus response. Oh, yeah. Well, health. Will, I mean, health is just. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, right. So there were two proposals for renter help that predated the budget deficit announcement. One required money, one didn't. I'm going to go through quickly what those two proposals were because I think they illustrate some of the dynamics at play. I will say I won't be surprised if you see another proposal in tandem with the budget moving along that tries to combine these or or does something else entirely. But the first proposal, which actually does have some price tag attached to it is from uh, Senator Lena Gonzalez. She's a relatively new senator from Long Beach. This is the landlord lobby's proposal. It's their bill. This would create a new fund that would be administered by the state housing department, which has a lot of other things going on right now. But tenants, if they could demonstrate a financial impact from COVID, they could go to the state housing department and say, hey, there's no way I can pay my rent. Can you help me out? Then the state would pay 80% of the missed rent payments, and landlords would have the decision whether or not to accept that payment from the state. Landlords would eat that remaining 20%. Mm -hmm. So conspicuously absent from this is a price tag in the bill language itself. And so when I asked the lobbyists for the California Apartment Association, the landlord lobby, okay, you know what the question's going to be? How much is this going to cost? She said, you know, it might change, and this is early on, but, you know, ballpark, we're talking maybe $2 billion. Yeah. $2 billion, yes, that probably does speak to the scope of the problem. Right. But $2 billion is a big ask in good budget times. Oh, yeah. Not in a place where the state is going to have to explore active cuts to programs. Yeah. Now, the counter to that is, well, not all of that $2 billion will have to come from the state, which we can get to a little bit later, But something else interesting that she said, which I think indicates where California housing policy is now, is she was looking at money that the state had approved in 2017 for low-income housing development from the 2017 housing package. Because one of the stated uses of that money, which came from a new tax levied on real estate transactions, one of the uses was you could use it for rental assistance Mm -hmm. and homelessness prevention broadly. Right. So- When she said that, I was a little taken aback because that was the first direct instance of, hey, we had these pots of money that at least were marketed as possibly going to building new housing, and we might have to use it for rental assistance, which I think is a distinct possibility and one that a lot of people in housing circles will be very uncomfortable with. Yeah. So there's that proposal. Tenant groups, not a huge fan of that proposal yet for a variety of reasons, which we can get into. The other proposal is from Assemblyman Phil Ting, Democrat from San Francisco. This one, the landlord lobby hates. Tenants have yet to kind of fully embrace it, but this could be the vehicle for something bigger. This one says, okay, landlords, if you sue a tenant for eviction, 
the tenant can petition if they can again demonstrate that they've suffered some type of COVID related financial impact. The tenant can petition for a 25% reduction on rents going forward for a year, which the landlord would just have to eat without any compensation. And then they would pay back their missed rent in 10% installments. Mm -hmm. So the initial reaction from the landlord lobby and from California Chamber of Commerce and from developers too was and, like, and this my is an inbox because it's uh, filth. Yes. yes, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Was this is an infringement of constitutional rights? Right, right, right. Like, yeah. no, basically, yeah. like, no way. Yeah. You can't interfere in a private contract in this way. Right. They kind of made it sound like this was a 25% across the board rent cut, which it is not. It would have to go through the judicial system and the eviction system specifically. But it does give you a sense of the type of resistance there is among landlords to the thought of swallowing rent losses without some type of compensation. Well, and not so. and it's essentially it's essentially with that sort of big stick in there, it basically is a huge disincentive for a landlord to take their tenant to court uh, to be evicted at, at yes. any point as a, as a result of this. So that's exactly right. right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the state is limited in what it can do here. It, it just is because of the financial constraints. So the favored phrase among California lawmakers, not just who are actively involved in housing, but kind of in in any field is, well, California doesn't print money, but you know who does? And then they pause. Right. As if if we don't know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they say the federal government really needs to pitch in here. Yeah. So how realistic is that? Well, some of the money that the feds already approved as part of the initial stimulus package could be devoted to rental assistance. It likely won't be enough. It almost certainly won't be enough. And so people are holding hopes out for another round of funding. Given comments from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell that, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world if states enter bankruptcy, some Democrats, including Phil Ting, who's the chair of the Assembly Budget Committee here, aren't super confident that the funding will materialize in scale that they want it to. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But if there is anything approaching the level of need, it is very likely going to have to come from the feds. Yeah, it's, it's tough to imagine a world where there's robust funding for rental assistance or the housing market in general that does not come from the federal government. California can't deficit spend, right? It's in the Constitution. Yes. You want to try to raise taxes I mean, man, uh, good luck. You know, I mean, there's a yeah. huge ballot measure for to raise commercial property taxes. Uh, Maybe in, on vaping, but that's about right, it. Right, yeah. right. Commercial property taxes in, in November. I know the supporters for that are very much behind it, but that's a huge lift yeah. even in normal times, let alone when businesses are failing. And so it's tough to imagine a world where the money that you need, as you said, at the scale you need, doesn't come from the federal government. If it does come, it'll be contingent on some type of compromise between Senate Republicans who aren't big fans of bailing out state legislatures and House Democrats who are pushing this. This is probably the biggest thing on in terms of what they want to see in the next bailout round. So I just want to really quickly hit landlords and tenants on the same page. You'll hear it in the interviews too. Congress, state government, local governments, give us money, give us money, give us money, give us money. But there are particular divisions over how that money gets distributed and what happens with evictions that I think are, are worth highlighting because those divisions remain and those are things that the state actually can tackle because they don't require money. So what the tenant groups I think want above all is to get the threat of evictions related to non-payment of rent 
because of COVID off the table entirely. Right now, it's a procedural pause. The courts can't pursue the evictions, but once you take it off that pause, if you haven't paid your April rent, your May rent, because you lost your job due to COVID in many parts of the state, landlords could still move to evict you. So that's the first and kind of most important thing I think a lot of tenant groups want, which is let's take that legally off the table. So even if you owed money, you couldn't be evicted because of it. Landlord groups aren't big fans of that idea for obvious reasons, right? They want to be able to use eviction as a deterrent mechanism, and they want to be able to collect on on their rent by using eviction as that type of mechanism. The question then becomes, okay, what amount of debt are renters going to be saddled with, if any at all? And how would landlords go about collecting that debt? Well, as you said at the top, it's who pays the bill here? The tenant pay the bill? Does the landlord pay the bill? Or do taxpayers pay the bill? What combination of that is? And right now, the situation is, you know, it's really haphazard. And the predominant ultimate bag holding is the person holding the bag at the top is the tenant, which could then, as we talk about in in these interviews, really could lead to downstream effects that could hurt the landlord as well. And then the broader economy, if the housing market screwed up again, as we all know, which could then end up hurting taxpayers too. So bad. It's it's all bad. Yeah. It's it's all bad. And I think it's also important to keep in mind as this debate develops, what types of tenants, what types of landlords may qualify for any rental assistance. And to be clear, you're talking about whether you have to be low income to qualify for the rental assistance, or you have to be a small landlord to qualify, you know, kind of those kind of characteristics. You can already see the outlines of that in the Ting bill, which would allow small landlords actually to demonstrate to the court their financial hardship if a reduced rent payment would, you know, make them default on their mortgage, for example. You also see it in the most recent federal legislation beyond the Omar legislation. This is legislation from Sherrod Brown, Senator of Ohio, and Democratic uh, Representative Maxine Waters from California. It's $100 billion for rental assistance, but it is primarily targeted at lower-income tenants. We're talking 30% of median income, 50% of median income, pretty far down on the the income ladder. So let's head to our interviews. And just one flag, um, Patricia, who we speak with, our, our tenant, she is a member of, of ACE. And that's the group that we talked about earlier on as being part of a, a key driver behind the rent strike movement. We're here with Patricia Mendoza, a resident of Imperial Beach and a renter who has been affected by the coronavirus. Patricia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for your invite. Can you tell us about yourself, You know where you live, how much you're paying in rent? Well, before the pandemic, my rent is uh, 1500 uh, I get $2,000 a month, so that leaves me with 500 for SDG&E, internet, and groceries, and whatever little knickknacks my kids might want for school or whatever. What kind of work uh, were you in? I've been working for the non-emergency medical transport. I do my job very well. I love what I do. I love take, picking up my members or patients and taking them to their non-emergency medical appointments. Some of them were cancer patients. Some of them are diabetic patients. And some of them, you know, just regular doctor visits that they take. But all of that stopped as of March 26. Tell us about the apartment that you pay 1500 a month for. How many bedrooms? Who sleeps where? It's a two-bedroom. I mean, I wish I could say, you know, we have three bedrooms, one for me, one for my daughter, one for my son. But we make it work with what we have. She mm-hmm. sleeps in one. She's 17. 
My son is nine, and he has a futon in the living room, and he lets me sleep in the other bed. But we share, so sometimes when he wants to go in there and sleep with mom, he can sleep with mom. How often does he still do that? Only when the... Um, when there's sad things that happen, like he spoke to one of his friends, and I guess his grandmother had passed away of COVID-19, and he was oh. kind of bummed, and he, you know, or he'll see me crying or stressing out for something, and he'll be like, Mom, can I sleep with you? I'm like, yeah, come on. Uh-huh. And then we'll talk at night, and we'll pray. You know what I mean? That God looks out for us, and that everything will come out great for us at the end. Tell us what happened to your income once the shelter-in-place stay-at-home orders occurred. At my job, you know, we didn't have no benefits, so we get $100 a day, $500 a week. I can't call in sick, you know, because that's $100 that I'm going to miss, so I never call in sick. You know, I'm always working. I mean, if I could do weekends, I would. I worked Christmas Eve last year, and instead of being home with my kids, I mean, hey, the struggle's real for us. I mean, we I have to do what I have to do. I don't want my daughter leaving school or, you know, getting a job because I want her to do what she wants to do. If she wants to go study, then by all means, I have to Uh find a way to, you know, make ends meet. But after this pandemic, the last two weeks of March, I only worked four days. Four days total? Yeah, that's 400 bucks. That's 200 bucks, you know, each week. And I didn't have enough to pay the rent, so I couldn't pay it. I couldn't pay March, April 3rd. And I didn't work all since March 26th until right now, I haven't worked, so I don't have the money. I don't have the welfare, you know? I don't have that because to them, I was making enough money to where I could make ends meet. That's what Mm -hmm. the county said. So I wasn't collecting welfare. Were you able to store away any savings that could help you out? No, really, I I can't because it's 1500 and I get paid two grand and... 5% 5% of my check goes straight to rent. I yeah, mean, yeah. find low-income housing and, you know, then we'll be okay. We'll be set. But right now, you know, it's really hard. Rents right. are really expensive. Were, were you able to get unemployment or, or any other kind of benefits after the job went away? I'm still waiting for my stimulus check and the unemployment. They still have to contact me because every time I go on their websites, the computers crash. Their right. website or the computers crash. So that's been very hard on me. The only thing I could tell you is that there have been a lot of good people and the owner where I used to work, which is right away transportation. She got the government fund. She got the help and she sent me $500 without working. And that to me, the world to me, because it was $500 that I didn't have that I didn't even work for. And she wrote me a letter and I called her right away. And she knows that I've been struggling. She goes, look, I got the loan and I just want to share it with you because I know you're a good mom. You always work hard for your kids. And I want you to at least have a little bit to pay whatever you need to pay. And I thought that was a blessing in itself. You know, she didn't have to do that, but she did. I think that never right now is when we, we should help one another because it's not just me. It's a lot of people. Right. Take us through when April 1st rolled around. Did you approach your landlord and have a conversation with your landlord about, hey, you know, there's just no way I'm able to afford the rent. Can we broker something out here? Actually, I was scared because April 3rd was going to come and I didn't have the money. I got a call because I've been following ACE. So I've been a member of ACE. I went to a couple of their meetings Mm -hmm. and um, Carlos called me from ACE and 
he asked me, and it was weird because nobody had asked me, how are you doing? You know, how has this affected you? So as soon as he called me, I just cried. You know, I cried, I cried because I can't believe another adult was asking me how I was because I'm the only adult in my house. You know, sometimes you have nobody to talk to. And he called and he explained to me about the moratorium and he explained to me that I have renter's rights and he explained to me that I needed to write a letter. So I did. I wrote the letter, but she wasn't having it, the the property manager. Um, she wanted to make sure maybe I can make payment arrangements, but how am I going to make payment arrangements if I'm still not working? Yeah. As soon as this goes back to normal, my boss said you can have your job back, but when will that be? I mean, usually we pick up people from convalescent homes or just in living or rehabilitation homes, and nobody's being picked up right now. Everybody's scared. They're doing their appointments through online. Right. So that totally affected me big time. I mean, yeah. we went from doing 55 trips a day to doing four. Mm-hmm. She didn't keep us. You know, she had to let some of us go. I want to ask this. You know, I think there's a difference between not economically being able to pay your rent and then deciding, yes, I'm not going to pay my rent and I'm going to go on a rent strike, which is like a political statement too. Could you explain some of your thought behind saying, I'm going on a rent strike? Well, I have no choice. Even if they do give us six months after to pay, how am I going to pay if I only have $500 left over? That means I'm going to have to get a nighttime job. That means my kids are going to be alone. So I must go on this rent strike. This is my calling right now. This is what I need to fight for because there's a lot of Patricias like me. Because I just want the government to cancel rent, to cancel our mortgage payments by taxing corporate landlords or, or Wall Street companies that have been like making billions. They say we're in this together, but are we really? Am I going to tell my kids three or six months from now? That we have to be homeless and live in a van? I mean, really? So we're not in this together. We're really not. It hurts because you have to tell their kids that we're going to be homeless. I've never paid my rent late. Never. When you told the property manager that there was no way you were going to be able to pay rent in April and that you, you wouldn't be paying rent in May either, what was their reaction? I was a little scared. And then I was a little upset because she wrote back to me saying that she was really disappointed in me because I was about the only one over 200 people that haven't made a payment arrangement and that she was going to tell the lawyer and she was going to tell the property manager because he's really scared of foreclosure of some Uh of his property. Uh So I thought, we have a landscaper that comes every other weekend here. You're really worried about cutting your costs, losing your your properties to foreclosure? Shouldn't you be cutting on some of your costs? First of all, I would come and tell the tenants, hey, do you guys think that if you guys, you know, share every other weekend and somebody cleans the lawn, I'll discount it off of your rent. Help each other. But she tried, and it, it made me sad because, She says, I understand, but then she says, but I'm very disappointed. How? Why are you disappointed in me? Because it's not my fault. I didn't ask for this. I would be working right now. Do you understand at all the argument about from the landlord about worried about being foreclosed? Or what, what, what do you think a landlord should do about their bills right now? I think that they should get the help, too, because it's not just rent. It's mortgage payments. Yeah. So 
I mean, why can't we help each other? The banks, what are the banks for? Like you said, you're still waiting for your stimulus check. Who's still waiting for theirs? I have a lot of people that have gotten it and we still haven't gotten it. And how do we know that they didn't get the help already and they're still trying to collect rent? Like, how do we know? Yeah. California is really rich. It's a really rich state. I don't yeah. understand. We're not asking for something bad. We're asking for something that's right. Something that's helping is a human right. I mean, everybody should be in the pandemic. No, sh- Nobody should go homeless. None. Nobody. Uh-huh. Even if you don't have kids. Especially with kids, that's your pride and joy. That's my future. I can't tell my kids that. That would be like I failed as a mother and it's not even something that I caused. Patricia, what do you think should happen at the end of the day here? The, what do you think is the right outcome for you and for people like you? For Governor Newsom to hear us, for him to understand that we're hurting too. We don't have the luxury of working from home. I was a driver I have my sheriff license. I'm CPR certified. I can do it. I can do my job. Just not right now. I have asthma. What happens if I don't come back to my kids? I want him to hear my voice because my voice symbolizes so many, so many Patricials out there. Maybe they're afraid to talk. Maybe they're embarrassed. But you know what? When they see me or when they heard me on the news, I got a lot of emails saying that I'm not alone, that they're a single mom too, and that they're hurting too, that they don't know what to do. So that's not just me fighting for myself. It's me fighting for all of our people that need the help right now. Have you talked to your children about this? What questions are they asking you? I talk more to my daughter. Mm -hmm. We cry together. We pray together. We pray with my son too, but I try not to let him see me cry because he's the one that gets worried more. So we cry at night when he's asleep or... I mean, he collects cans and bottles, and he has $53.47. And he told me last month, he told me, Mommy, you can use my money to pay the rent. And that's his money from collecting cans and bottles. A nine-year-old shouldn't be thinking of that. That's his money that he worked hard for. Like, I work hard for mine, and that's how I made ends meet. The only time I do talk to him more is when... Like the grandmother passed away and I have to let him know this is around the world, papacito. You know, we can't go outside. We can't do the fun things we used to. Things are going to change. I don't think we're going back to normal. I think we're going to have to live with caution from now on. And we have to take better care of ourselves and better care of Mother Earth because without her, we're nobody. I mean, this is honestly a reality check to both of them because they miss their school. You know, they miss their friends. I mean, the whole summer being locked up for them, it's stressful too. So a lot of times I don't let him see the crybaby side of mom. I don't want Mm -hmm. him to stress, but sometimes it's irrelevant. We have to let it out and we have to let our kids know the truth. You know, we have to wear a mask every time we go out now. He still doesn't go with me to the grocery store. You know, a nine-year-old kid, the first thing he does is goes and touch everything. And I don't want him to touch anything. Patricia, is there anything else that you want our audience to know or anything that you want to emphasize? I just want, I just want to be together with everybody who's saying we're in this together. I just want to be accounted for. I just don't want to fall through the cracks. I'm not asking everybody to do the rent strike. I mean, by all means, if you have your rent and you can afford to pay it, pay it. Don't get in trouble. 
But if you're like me, that you have no way, then join the rent strike. Even if you do pay it, join, sign for us. Let my voice be heard over everybody else's because they need to understand that we need help, that we're human too, and that something's got to give. We need to win. What's going to happen? I don't want you guys to interview me six months from now and say, you know, tell you that I'm homeless. I don't want that to happen. Is that what you think would happen if you were evicted? Is you and your kids would be homeless? Where would we go? I don't have, you know, money for a deposit. I barely had money for the groceries. This $500 check that my boss gave me, I paid the SDG&E, which was April and May, and I paid the cable bill. We don't have that money that we fall back on. I don't have a savings account. I have a checking account because that's how I paid my rent. They took it out of my checking account. Well, Patricia, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us and for sharing your experience. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia. We're here with Evelyn Garcia. Her family owns a seven-unit apartment complex in South L.A. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Evelyn. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Tell us a little bit about how your family came to own this property. Well, my father, is a sheet, his original work is a sheet construction worker, so he got laid off from his employment back in 2007, I believe. Great recession. Yeah, exactly. He got he got laid off during that recession, and he didn't ha- know what to do at the time. I mean, he went back to work, and he worked at multiple agencies that would hire him for like a day or two. And so he was becoming very impatient. And some real estate agents went by, told them, hey, you can't become a property owner. You get put your current home, uh, refinance it, pull some money out, and become a landlord. So I guess that sounded, he had an epiphany. He's like, oh, of course I could do that. So that's how we came, my father owning the property. So what does it look like? Is it a couple stories or to tell us a little bit about kind of what the apartments are like in there? Uh, it's just one building, two stories. We have so three units in the bottom and four units on top. And are they all like uh, one bedroom, two bedroom? What, what, uh, how big are they? Uh, the majority is one bedroom and then we only have uh Two units are two bedrooms. They're all rent controlled, right? All of them are rent controlled, correct. So because of that, I'm sure the rents must vary a little bit according to when the current occupant first entered the unit. But could you give us like a range of of the rents that you guys charge? Yeah, for a two bedroom, I'm currently renting one for twelve hundred. For a one bedroom, the rent is currently the lowest one right now is currently about nine hundred fifty. And the high end is, um, and this is a Section 8 tenant, approximately mm-hmm. 1600 Can you describe the typical tenants that you've had during the time that you've, that you've owned the place? Uh, yes, nothing but low income or mm-hmm. tenants that are Section 8 recipients. Have they been pretty reliable with the rent, or is every first of the month kind of a, a roulette wheel for you? It is a roulette wheel, um, but we love working with our tenants. They're like our second family to us, so we're always willing to work with them if they're going through challenges. It hasn't occurred lately. Every individual tenant has a different issues or problems why they can't make me with their rent. Mm-hmm. So it's a case-by-case basis. And what do you and your father rely on that rent for? What bills do you guys have that you guys pay with the income from your property? 
how everything from the mortgage to the utilities to maintenance to taxes and insurance to registration with the city of LA and city taxes. So yeah, it's a lot. And the construction that we have to do or, or remodeling, it all comes from, we all depend from our rent. There's no other income sources for you guys? There's no other income source. I mean, uh, my father basically used up his entire retirement, has invested in his entire retirement in building. So this is it for me and him. Would you share how much your mortgage payment is on the property and how much you have left on it? Yeah, our mortgage is approximately $5,000, and we still owe approximately, uh, I want to say, 450000 Wow. Wow. So it's not cheap. Tell us what happened once the coronavirus pandemic started. How has that affected things at your complex? Uh, the way it started affecting it is that a lot of our, our tenants were confused. Some of them decided to relocate or move out with family, but unfortunately they, they did not talk to me and let me know, well, you know, we're, we're planning on moving out because we don't have our jobs or we're unable to afford to make the rent. So that affected us tremendously, not knowing, of, okay, well, we have three units that are vacant and we do have some tenants that are struggling that are using the rent to purchase food and things they need, medication. So we're working with those tenants as well. And it has affected us in the way that we're unable to make ends meet. We're unable to keep that flow or pay our mortgage or pay the expenses in our building. What are the deals that you've struck with the tenants that remain in the property? We're not asking them to pay us right now at the moment. We have an open communication line with them. So we said, okay, whenever this all blows over and we're back on your feet, by all means, go ahead reach out to us and we'll make a payment plan. But as far as right now, I, I don't want to put that strain on them and say, oh, you have to sign this and this is a payment plan. This is how we're going to work it out. I think it's not the right moment to do that. Put that stress on them. So I just want to be clear here for May, did you get any rental income? I get partial rent. You got partial rent. Okay. From four of the units. Yeah. So what does that mean for your own bills? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we are trying to manage and we reached out to our debtor, our creditors and, you know, our utilities. We haven't keeping up well with the utilities, but we do project in the next two months we'll be underwater. We won't be able to meet air bills or mortgage. So it's scary because at this point, I'm unable to pay myself or my father's uh-huh. unable to pay himself. So uh-huh. we're literally using our own uh, credit cards to fund everything. Evelyn, you mentioned you had creditors. Have you been in touch with your bank or have you talked with the bank about getting a deal or some sort of repayment agreement with your mortgage? I have. They're confused as well. So it's a private lender. It's not federally backed up. They're trying to see what they could offer us. I mean, as far as right now, they said, well, we're going to give three months moratorium, but that only includes the month of March, April, and May. Uh, for me, I mean, basically, they instructed to me that either I owe the entire past three months or I do a modification. But, of course, modification will mean a higher interest rate, uh, higher mortgage. Yeah. One of the interesting wrinkles, I think, with your story is you yourself are a renter. 
and not at this complex. And you told me off air that you might have to leave the current lease that you're under? Yes, I might have to break my lease, move into my father's unit. And actually, my father is living there right now, so it's owner-occupied at the moment. Uh What conversation are you having, or have you had one yet with your landlord in terms of like your financial obligations and breaking the lease? I'm sorry, I apologize. I'm not breaking the lease. I've been here for quite a while. Okay. You're month to month? Yeah, and it's, it's pretty ironic. You know, I'm, I have to explain to her, well, due to my tenant is not paying the rent and then not being able to afford it at this time, neither can I. Yeah. So it's going to be one of those conversations where I need to move in um, in one of these vacancies. So it sounds like you have a pretty intimate understanding of the fact that people are not being able to make their rent right now. How do you think about that in the context of both being a landlord and not getting that rent and also being a tenant and then not being able to pay the rent? I mean, it's made me very empathetic. You know, my heart goes out to all the tenants that are hurting during this time. And I mean, they're not alone. We're in this together. There's a lot of mom and pop landlords out there who are probably struggling as much as the tenants are. So we could just all work together and move forward and try to have Congress to lend us a hand not only to manage the tenants as well, and if they could subsidize their rental in order to meet and meet. So your property is in L.A., and L.A. passed an ordinance where renters would have 12 months to pay back missed rent payments. Would that time frame work for you financially? No, it won't, it won't work for us. Elaborate on why. I do want our tenants to get 12 months. I want them to have that time. But unfortunately, we don't have that time, and we can afford to wait 12 months to recoup our rentals because we will probably be put out of business by that. You know, beyond the folks who are just simply unable to pay their rent or are not paying their rent for purely economic reasons, there's other folks who are not paying their rent, not just for economic reasons, but for political ones as well. They're saying that they're on a, you know, quote unquote, rent strike. Uh, Their argument is that the government or some level of government should cancel rent uh, and mortgage payments entirely. What do you think of that argument? What, what I say to those folks is that, unfortunately, you know, us small housing providers, we're also trying to stay afloat. And we, we really do depend on our tenants. We would like to accommodate their housing needs. But unfortunately, us small landlords like my father and I, um, this is the way we provide a living for our families. And we're also very empathetic for those you know, renters for their loss of income. The situation, I think, is more complicated than that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, someone would lose out on, you know, that money. It's like a domino effect. I don't get a rental. I'm unable to hire electricians or plumbers. So if somebody else is missing out on, on employment right. and income. It's yeah. not just us. Do you think landlords have to be willing to accept some type of haircut here? No matter what, they're going to be out 20%, 30%, 50% of, of what they're owed. Is that kind of an inevitability? I think it's going to disrupt a lot of us, especially yeah. those who cannot afford to hold that type of burden, offering 20%. Because a lot of our landlords, we're already subsidizing our tenants. You know, with the RSO tenants and rent control, we're yeah. unable to get market rentals. So we've been subsidizing a lot of our tenants for many years and get an additional cut of 20%, 50%. 
I mean, it, it would literally put us out of business. There are some tenant groups who will argue that being a landlord is like owning any other business and, you know, landlords are not like any other business entitled to any return on that investment. So, you know, sometimes you lose when you make investments. How do you respond to arguments like that? I would say, you know, being a landlord, our our profit margins are very slim. Yeah. Especially when you're in under rent control. We're not killing it. (laughs) We're just trying to make a living. And um, I I guess when we're asked, why are you even doing this? And be quite honest with you. I guess we just, we enjoy housing individuals and building relationships for our tenants. Long-lasting relationships. You know, it gives my father something to do. He's active and he feels useful. I mean, we feel useful. Unfortunately, you know, with this epidemic and the struggles that have long struggles from the past are catching up to us right now. And it's just hitting us hard. What would you like to see happen? What's the best outcome here that you could foresee? I believe the best outcome would be that the federal government, county, the city, the Congress would be able to assist tenants. Help them out if they're unable to make their rent because of loss of income or they're struggling because caring for somebody else or they're sick. It would help not only the tenants, but the small, small and pop landlords who cannot afford to take on the burden of not receiving rent. If you are ultimately going to pursue an eviction on, on one of your current tenants, where do you think they would go? Us landlords, we're not in the business of evicting tenants. Mm-hmm. There's no winners in eviction, and it's, it's very costly for landlords. Only it hurts the tenant and, and the landlord. Like I said, it's very expensive. And if they were to be evicted, I don't know. I don't know if they have relatives, family who would take them in, or I mean, they would eventually be homeless. We're not in the business to put people out in the street, not at all. Do you think you'd be able to reach agreements with your tenants without like the threat of eviction being there, though? Because that's kind of like the ultimate enforcement mechanism. I believe that landlords could work out arrangements with your tenants and have a open communication line with them and communicate with them, especially during these, uh, this epidemic and work out a payment plan. But yeah, I, I, I don't know about this question just because we don't practice this. Again, we're just small landlords. We're a small fish in a large pool. For the landlords that I do know in my association, we were all trying to work for our tenants. But do you think landlords that don't own rent-controlled buildings that are able to charge market rates and, and also larger landlords, corporate landlords, do you think they should be treated differently in any type of bailout situation than landlords like yourself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's fair that we're painted with the same brush because we're not a large entity. We're not a large corporation. Get that type of funding that some larger uh, businesses are getting. And it's because we're not considered a business and we're not getting the funding. You know, maybe a larger landlord will. Thank you so much, Evelyn, for joining us. Thank you so much. Put the word out that, you know, small landlords, are, are we are struggling. We, want, we do really truly want to help our tenants remain home and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with CalMatters. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon with the LA Times. My Twitter handle is at DillonLiam. 
please subscribe and rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the LA Times. And donate to um, Cal Matters. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks. And a quick note for those of you who may be concerned, we, we are really hoping that Liam being furloughed would not affect the podcast. We're still planning on producing the podcast in hopefully a more efficient way, time-efficient way. But we will continue to produce this as long as there's some type of demand for it. Knock on wood. <laughs>